welcome to Carrots and Suffering, a D&D Odyssey. I am Nate, your Dungeon Master. I write big parts of the story and decide the actions of the different people based on what my players decide to do. This is an intrigue campaign, and it is moving to its end stages. I hope you enjoyed this. Please leave us a rating and review so that we know you enjoyed it. Okay, last time on Carrots and Suffering. Lorelei Varathi, former rival for House Varathi, sold out to the Fairy Queen and became a full-fledged warlock with power to rival Sable's magic basically overnight. Anyway, I just thought you should know that she is beholden to the Fairy Queen uh, at the moment and a full-fledged agent, definitely, definitely looking out for her best interests. Silva recruits the Masons to support House Mentor over House Varathi in an effort to restore order to the kingdom and give them enough time to fix it. For our first project, I have received special dispensation from the Regent to test its efficacy. I believe that we should do so by cutting the Masons to their former quarries so that we may enrich the kingdom in stone again. Jalen came clean about making a deal with the Fairy Queen. Now she's forced to fully consider the option of choosing to become a Fae on her 21st birthday instead of human. She closes her eyes for a moment and opens them and looks at Sable and says, Sable, I'm, I'm sorry. Sable, with her newfound flying power, goes to scout the castle and discovers that it is a maze. In a maze, filled with werewolf monsters trapped in eternal mystical moonlight, holding them in beast form, and comes within one saving throw of never leaving the castle again. Roll me initiative. Oh, shit. Okay. Sorry, folks. I'm going to see if I can't make quick work of getting the fuck out of here. Uh, that would be a uh, 14. Okay. Bad news. Wolf beats you on initiative. Oh, shit. Silpha and Leslie broke up as Leslie was torn between her career ambitions and her relationship with Silpha, while Silpha was caught between the two suitors she loves. I believe that in any choice between me and this position, you would always choose your position. Harriet Mentor, having befriended Silpha and not noticed the mind control magic, gets her desire to empower House Mentor with a marriage to Leslie and gives our heroes the rights to enter the Thorns officially, along with her research materials on the subject. Father, I'm authorizing these people to explore the Thorns at their leisure. Okay, let's get into it. Hi, I'm Nate, and I will be your Dungeon Master. I'm Sandra, I play Sable the Druid. I'm Mandy, I play Jalen the Rogue. I'm Julie, I play Sulfa the Wizard. Okay, team, we left off in the middle of a mentor family meeting filled with all of y'all, and we had just reached about the end of the meeting when Sulfa has a line. Go for it, Sulfa. There is one more item of business. When I spoke to the Masons this morning, news of the details of last night's attack had not reached them yet. I told Byron this incident would have ramifications for his family, and he wants to set things right. Malik will say, does he have something in mind? He had an idea, which I think is plausible, but will take some effort. He suggested that because all most people know about fetches is that they replace people who have been abducted into the Feywild, if he were to be seen being publicly rescued from the Fey, 
while he might not be trusted, at least no one would suspect he was a fetch. Harriet will say, well, this idea has merit, but we have to come up with some sort of justification for why Byron was abducted that doesn't apply to other nobles. Otherwise, we'll still have the issue of noble houses purging competition. I have a plausible alibi. All right, let's hear it. I have a fairy suitor who is envious of Byron. Jalen's eyebrows shoot up that Silpha is bringing that up. They don't know that that's true, I want to say, out of character. Your mother steps in and says, Sweetheart, I don't know that we want the rest of the kingdom thinking that you have a fairy suitor. The idea has merit, but, you know, kind of is damaging to you, isn't it? I also think if we're faking a rescue from Fae, let's not actually involve the Fae. Well, since I do not have a fairy suitor, there is no reason to involve actual Fae. Roll me that deception check. I am so deceptive, that's a 24. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, okay. The whole room goes, oh yeah, she definitely does not have a fairy suitor. Check. <laughs> then Leslie chimes in and will say, we can use illusion magic to mimic this fairy suitor if we want to have some fairy sightings. And Harriet says, I think it would be much easier to just spread rumors that people have been seeing fairies around Silva's house the last few days. Mm -hmm. And Leslie says, yeah, that would be easier. <laughs> so, I mean, what, we're going to burn our way to the Mason Quarry and find Byron there and bring him back? Is that... Can we play it that way? I don't think most citizens know the difference between the fairy wilds and the thorns. We could potentially play it that way. I mean, we're talking about an ad hoc plan at the last minute. Why don't we go with what we were planning to do anyway and fold it in as part of the deal? Malik says, it's as likely to work as most other plans, and if it has our support, we can push it. And... Frankly, the true value here is that if we make it clear the Mentor family is not going to buy any arguments about someone else being replaced by fetches without any sort of clear cause, it doesn't really matter if people believe it hook, line, and sinker. All they have to know is that they're not going to get away with murder. It would also be useful to convince people that we have a way to detect fetches. We do, indeed. Yes, I know we do, but I don't know how open we want to be about what that way is, but people just need to believe that we have it. I think we need to involve someone at the church in this plan, says Harriet. They have the kind of authority that nobles will be assumed to be manipulating. If someone at the church said that they had the ability to detect fetches and that they would make this service regularly available free of charge, then... I think we have a closed problem. And Malik Jr. looks over at Malik Sr. and says, Father, do we have pole at the church? And he says, we do. I can make this happen if you wish, although we're going to have to give them something more than just a command. They won't be appreciative if I ask them to lie. Silpha, could you rig up a dud charm or something that they could use? I mean, we don't actually want them identifying fetches and brutally murdering them. Or do we? No, we don't want any kind of witch hunt. So what we need is for them to say they have a token or something that can help them detect fetches, but doesn't actually detect shit. And when they use it on anybody, it's not going to light up or sparkle or make music or whatever it would 
it's supposed to do, and then nobody's a fetch, and then everybody can breathe easier. Okay. So, it sounds like we have a plan. Malik Jr. leans in and... Let me recap it. Here's the plan. We begin spreading rumors that there was fairy presence around House Lunari over the last two weeks. Spottings. You cut your way into the thorns, you return, Byron comes out of hiding. Magically, we say that your party retrieved him from the fairy wilds after he was abducted. We then spread the full story and include in it that the church has found a foolproof way to detect fetches as a result of the attack that happened here yesterday. Agreed? Harriet says, well, it's as good as any other plan I've heard. Silpha. Silpha looks to her parents, to Vanessa and Hanzo, because rumors about fairy presence could now have implications to the house. Hanzo says, well, I don't love the plan. The nice part about it, though, is that Byron's a good man, and it helps him out. And your mother says, well, now that we're officially nobility, of course powerful entities would want to treaty with us. <laughs> Silpha nods her agreement with this plan. We should go forward with it. I like the idea of Byron being protected and eliminating any fallout this situation would have to the kingdom. All right. Lady Mentor Senior leans in and says, Okay, well, as the lawyer in the room, I would like to adjourn this meeting on that note. And please keep any further, let's say, collaborations to quiet and concealed locations. I think we can move forward with this plan. And you see the adults all nod, and Malik says, okay, meeting adjourned. So my note of, hey, I'm okay, I'm not dead, has probably not reached them yet. It will. So as you all are leaving the mentor study, a small field mouse creature runs up, and then instead of scampering up your leg, it flaps its arm flaps, and then quasi-fly leaps up into... We'll have it leap to Silpha's shoulder. <laughs> Where it's immediately <laughs> chomped by Skrix. Chomped by Skrix, yeah. Uh, <laughs> just like the last one, and it's like, Silpha, meet me! <laughs> Where a, a cat paw promptly slams it down onto Silpha's shoulder, and in a choked breath it says... Sable, it's fine. We'll see you in morning. <laughs> Jalen lets out a breath when she hears that. And Skrix says, can I eat this? It's a squeak, messenger. Squeak, squeak, Technically, squeak, squeak. you shouldn't eat the messenger. It's considered bad form. Don't kill the messenger. Very well. And the flappy squirrel mouse leaps off your shoulder and disappears. And he says, well, that would have been perfectly fun to chase. Silpha shudders, but then pulls out a spider from her component's pouch. Oh, num! <laughs> <laughs> Jalen is going to ask Harriet Jr. and Leslie if she can have a private word with them both. Yeah, Harriet and Leslie will nod. They have immediately gone together, and Harriet appears to be talking paperwork and notary details. Oh boy, how romantic. And Leslie's sort of like, mm hmm, mm hmm. Now we'll have to read that thoroughly, and we should do it in the presence of probably your mother and Lord Evans. And you you interrupt this incredibly romantic... <laughs> this romantic business arrangement marriage. Contract negotiation beginnings. Harriet 
Leslie, sorry to interrupt your date. Can we have a word privately? Yes, absolutely. And Jalen will look at me, Evan, and say, we might need some transportation in a bit. Can you give that to us? I'll wait outside. Thank you, lady. And Harriet says, yes, sister-in-law, please sit. All right, so we, we go to a sub-private space? Yep. Jalen looks at Leslie and says, it seems like we're in a little bit of a bind with timing and what the Fairy Queen's moves are going to be in short order. And I think the time has come to disclose some secrets. You are the worst spy ever! Well, she's also talking <laughs> to the spy master and the former spy master. Leslie says, well, now we haven't signed the contract just yet. And she looks over at Harriet and says, Harriet, and Harriet says, well, my word is good. It will be signed by morning. Fuck's sake. Jalen pulls out some paper, says, Leslie, Harriet, married and happily wedded bliss. Sign. They, <laughs> they look at you and say, oh, it, we'll do it officially in the morning, but thank you for the sentiment. All right. Current existing knowledge will be included, correct? And Leslie says, yes, as long as you reciprocate. And they both look at you. And Leslie gives you a nod. Okay. Jalen pulls out her maps. She pulls out Mio's map. And she pulls out the tunnel map. And then the new drawing that they gave her of the caves with the tendril offshoots going off. And mm -hmm. she says, this one's not to scale, but we're going to have to work with this. She says, if the queen makes a move, you're going to have to get the people out. And this is a gamble. This is a pure gamble, but it's better than being pulled into Fey. If you need to get the people out, send them down here and send them off this tendril. And she points to the one that seems to be heading out of the thorns, that would mm -hmm. continue the way through the thorns. I don't know if it gets them out or not, but this is an escape route, potentially. Harriet's face looks stoic as she's looking at these maps. And then she says, you have a tunnel out? Surprise. And she looks at Leslie, and Leslie says, it's not out yet, but I don't believe the Fairy Queen's control goes that deep. There are no thorns down there, so we could get everybody down there and potentially finish digging out. And Harriet, for what it's worth, if things go the way we talked about yesterday, and if they go the way we want them to once the thorns come down, this tunnel is going to be an asset to the entire spy network. Harriet says, I can immediately see the value of having a tunnel. I'm just surprised how big it is without me knowing. Well, that's why Leslie's the spy master. Taylor prudently just doesn't say anything <laughs> about this. Smart. She could be snarky, but she's not gonna. She gives Leslie a frustrated look, and Leslie says, well, you're the competition until tomorrow. And Harriet seems to accept this answer and says, all right, we'll work on an evacuation plan. Again, I don't know where these tendrils go. They could be dead ends. They could lead to bad shit. But I, it's hard to think of anything worse than getting absorbed into face. So if people are at least underground and in this tunnel, it might protect them. Very well. We will work on something. I'll gather the family together first thing in the morning, and we can start drafting plans and proclamations. We'll keep them secret, but we'll be ready to move if we need to. And Leslie says, I have some good ideas for evacuation routes and incentives and harriet says okay let's start drafting them okay i'm gonna go find sofa Bye. yeah you go for it she's going to remove herself from the room taking the maps with her cassandra varathy from a cousin branch of the varathy house spent years tending to the emotional tantrums of one of the most powerful beings in this world and the next 
She smiles to herself happily as she tucks the newlyweds, Jessica Evans and Iris Lunari, into bed. This couple was like any kind of hurricane she'd ever seen. The two had a long day of drinking and fighting in what will certainly be the first of many such nights. Something about watching this, walking disaster, and knowing in the morning it won't be her problem, brought her a great deal of joy. Cassandra backs out of the room slowly, into the main area of social lies, the local town bar and inn owned by Blotto Lunari, a massive cockroach of a man, and Iris's father. Blotto stands behind the bar, counting all the copper and silver he made today from the gambling and drinks bought during Iris and Jessica's wedding. Above him is a makeshift frame, hanging the wedding dress that Jessica ruined through hours of drunken fighting and wrestling. Perhaps he'll rename the bar, he thinks as he pours himself a drink for him and his guest. The tattered gown? Across the bar stands Lord Evans, Jessica's father. He smiles as he accepts the drink. He silently toasts Blotto, the local gambling boss for his family's elevation to nobility. His little girl couldn't have done better for herself, marrying herself out of the way like this. The relationship was sure to be fraught with drama worthy of bard song, but it suited Jessica just fine. She would be happy, and he was happy knowing this. In the morning, he'd buy her a little house in town for the two of them, and Blotto would furnish it. Cassandra walked through the main hall of Socialize, and knew she was in the den of lions, or more accurately, weasels and cockroaches. The thugs from House Evans and House Lunari lined the walls, cautiously eyeing each other. Her years in the fairy court of beasts taught her that when predators were afoot, it was time to make yourself scarce. Cass walks out into the night and closes the door of the inn leaving the two giants of the underworld to do the business of marrying their influence together under the unstable eyes of Jessica and Iris Evans Lunari. They might grow into it, they might not. All is fair in the shadows. So I'll turn back into Sable and go, we have a lot to talk about. He just nods and says, we do. She's going to sit down somewhere where she can lean against a wall or a pew or something because she thinks she's going to be there for a while. And she's going to ask, I think she's going to start with, tell me about who you are. Hmm. Every fairy has rehearsed this tale. I emerged into the world fully formed, as the fate do. I am a creature of sorrow and winter's hardship. With my nature being sorrow, I tend to take to myself, but I can absorb the sorrow of others and turn them to their true fairy states. The Winter Queen was concerned that someone like me, who can heal heartache in a way, would be worshipped by mortals as a god she was threatened, and so I was banished from her court. I spent a few centuries wandering when I was called by the fairy queen of these lands, the queen of the beast within man. She needed my services to cure a heartache. When I arrived, it was not her she wished to fix, but her wife. Heart-rending only works on the willing, and it only takes away pain. It cannot restore love. So I could not help her, 
I went to wander again and ply my trade amongst the mortals. I can hear your heart's sorrow or joy at a great distance, and those who wish to trade it away can do so through me. I had thought at the time it was a noble calling. You met Marigold? What did she tell you about herself, about the Queen, about their relationship? I did not meet her in the sense that my eyes laid on her visage. I sensed her, her heartache. It was intense, and it rolled across the Fairy Queen's court. I knew immediately I could do nothing about it, but I did not lay eyes on Marigold. All I know is that she is stopped and remains in the castle of the Queen of the Beast within Man. After that, you stayed in Fenrir? Hmm. About 400 years ago, the Fairy Queen of Beasts decided that she wanted changelings in the land of Fenrir. So she offered me a job. Do what I normally do, but do it in Fenrir. While I'm at it, I should create changelings as much as I can, and I would apply my trade free of charge to those changelings. The rest I can do as I please. In exchange, I was given certain freedoms and exemptions, akin to a visiting noble from a foreign court. So I've been in Fenrir ever since. Trading hearts. Trading hearts and changelings. Did did the queen explain why she wanted changelings or why she wanted you to apply your trade specifically for them? Hmm. She explains very little and hides her true intentions quite well. But the only reasonable assumption is that she wants changelings to be fey. Creatures deprived of their hearts are much more like fey, and are much more likely to choose fey when the time comes. I cannot say why she wishes this, but I can say whatever she wishes, she intends for you to be part of it. So she'll wait, and then she'll kind of change the subject, and she'll say, how did, how did you meet Valeria? Ah. Well, that story begins with your grandmother. The matron Eustace Verathi, what an interesting woman. Her heart was already like the Fae. I found it quite fascinating. I decided to learn from her to spend time in her house. I posed as a servant. She did eventually notice when I didn't age, and she did. But it took nearly ten years. During that time, I met your mother. Valeria was very special. She turned her back on society, lived in nature, no interest in mortal power, but her true power, it was immense. My vow put the matron to shame and was just uninterested in all of the things she valued. Initially, I was quite attracted to her power, but there was always something deeper there. I told her my deals, free of charge. This is something I have never done for anyone or anything. 
we decided eventually that we would marry. I don't think Sable has a response to that either. She's pretty quiet again. But eventually she'll, she'll say, and then you both decided to have me? Hmm. Val wanted a child, and I had the obligation. She wanted to break the cycle of working with the Fairy Queen. To break from the family in the circle. So she went to the ancient trees and called the Pixies. She asked that the next changeling born be hers. And the Fairy Queen set an odd price. The wording was that she not work against the blessings of the Fay or the Thorns, and Val assumed that this meant she would not be removing curses in the kingdom. She assumed this was something she would already be doing. Such an act would be quite dangerous. But in the end, it was much more complex. Val's mother was furious. The matron believed that Val was going to marry a commoner in the eyes of society, that she was going to forsake everything the house stood for, everything the matron wanted her to do. And so she banished her. I'm sure she did so, assuming Val would come crawling back. But Val was never going to do that. That was when we decided to marry, for sure. In truth and we traded hearts. So marriage between fairies is trading hearts? Not always, no. This was a special situation. Your mother and I knew that we cared for each other, but we struggled to connect. She did not understand truly what it is to be fae, and I did not understand truly what it is to be mortal. So I plied my trade, to her and to myself, for the first time. We traded hearts. She became more as me, and I became more as her. It was a tough transition. I regret it to this day. Your mother lost her spark. That thing that lives inside your kind. Turns out, much of what I loved about her was that spark. Then it turned out that the child she was to bear was made of poison, and when she used her spells to try to heal herself, now that she was a fairy, it's not that they broke the deal, it's that they simply would not work. She sickened before you were born, and died shortly after. For me, the change was... Even more profound, I realized that the sorrow I had been removing took with it all of the good, the joy, the love, the things that make being immortal worth being. My trade is a crime, and I ruin everyone I touch with it. I did not realize this. And so now I live here. An old fraud. Sable's, like, the whole time he's talking, like, the moment that he said poison, she just started curling up tighter, pulling her knees to her chest, and just like, oh, you know, she's, that hurt. The first thing, 
why didn't you call somebody else? But like by the time she even thinks about thinking that, she realizes that if it wouldn't work for Valeria, it wouldn't work for anyone else. It was the probably the change in her nature. So I think she's just going to frown and pull herself back together. And you know, I mean, I think this kind of pisses her off, honestly. She's going to look back at him with a frown and, and say, well... Why weren't you a father to me when you could have been? Hmm. There are a few reasons. The first is that your grandmother blamed me, rightfully, for her daughter's death. Despite the matron's use of banishment on Val and her lack of a loving heart, she understood vengeance quite well and fully intended for Val to return to the life the matron had planned for her, I ruined a great deal of things for your grandmother. But if I die, then the last of Val dies with me, and so I stay here somber, keeping her alive. But more than that, I learned through this whole affair, my nature is simply toxic to your kind. What I do damages you irreversibly. I would ruin you. That is something I simply cannot do to my own daughter. Your grandmother was far from perfect, but she was still better than what I could have done for you. At least she understood some of what it meant to live in this world as a mortal. Truthfully, from time to time, I did look in on you. Something about your mother's heart causes me to ache. Both when I'm away and when I am near. I don't truly understand it. You live. You breathe. You have what you need. And in fairy lands, this is sufficient. I fear your mother would be quite disappointed in me. You know what? She's going to stand up and she's going to like go over to where he is. Is he sitting? Yep. Okay. So she's going to go over to where he is and kind of look down at him and say, my matron turned on her family. She turned on her allies. She turned on her circle. And she gave all of the problems that she created in every one of those to me. I give her precious little appreciation. She kept me alive and let her daughter die. I don't think she's going to say this out loud, but she's definitely going to think, and you let her set my path. She'll put a, a hand out to him to help him up to his feet. He'll take your hand and stand up. She says, well, father, I need your help now. Hmm. Tell me what help you wish. We are going to the heart of this problem. To the castle. We are going to try to end the curse. And set this land free. My heart feels fear when you say these words. You want the aid of a fairy. The heart renders power is only destruction. 
but I do have a favor that you may use in my stead. If we are lucky, the Queen of Winters, Dark and Sorrow, will see you as a cousin. Simply whisper her name, and he pulls from this little pouch, and you're not really sure where he pulled it from, but it's a it's a snowflake, like a little small palm of your hand, bit of cold and ice that doesn't seem to melt. And he tips his hand up to drop it into your gloved hand. I catch it. Whisper her name while you hold this, and she will come. But be warned. It is her season now. She is quite powerful. And the flake only works once. It's the mid-roll, and that means it's time for fairy facts. But first, a digression. During the Renaissance, there was a man named Paracelsus, who was, let's call him a doctor. He believed that sickness was not caused by morality or a balance of fluids in the body, but by outside forces. He's on to something. Those outside forces were supernatural creatures and powers of the world. Not, maybe not onto anything. Never mind. He revolutionized the art of doctoring by treating diseases with medicines. Which is correct-ish. Okay, he's back in. I'm, I'm all for this guy. But he also invented several mythical creatures, and one we can thank him for is the gnomes. Certainly not medical facts, but onward anyway. Gnomes were originally invisible creatures of Earth, supernaturally a part of the rocks and a kind of amalgamation of the different lore of mining goblins or the Greek and Roman mountain pygmies. Today, we would call these creatures elementals, and they wished for an immortal soul and could get one by joining with a human, but died if they were exposed to other elements. This is, of course, some excellent doctoring. Thank you, Paracelsus. Anyway, people loved the idea of gnomes, and so they became a staple of fairy tales, completely adopted in hook, line, and sinker. Over time, gnomes became invisible people who stand 15 centimeters high or less. They're essentially vegetarians, and they live out their full human-like lives, aided by the tiny wilderness creatures of the world. They eventually became a kind of benevolent fairy creature, living just like humans from birth to death. They didn't have much in the way of mystical powers. They could talk to small animals, they sometimes knew medicine, and they could turn invisible. They're mostly depicted as old men or women, some living like primitive people while others live just like humans did. Occasionally, they're still associated with the earth and mining, but mostly they're a kind of tiny earth guardian, living in little animal burrows right alongside them. Dealing with gnomes? Pretty easy, all things considered. Don't be mean to small animals and don't poke your hands in their little animal holes, and they'll probably leave you alone. One last digression. Paracelsus also invented the undine of water, the sylph of air, and the salamander of fire, which, like the gnome, were elemental spirits of nature, but they were not as quickly adopted into the ranks of fairies. The moral of this whole story is doctors can also get weird from time to time. Let's get back into it. So, Silpha was going to go back to her townhouse. So, at the townhouse, Silpha is going to busy herself by packing up a bag with more things to bring to the manor house, a bunch of components and supplies that 
she's purchased from Thalia's. And then she goes into the library study and she moves a stack of books from the shelf and reveals a small lockbox, which she opens and she rifles through some of the jewelry and things that are in there and takes out. She selects a brass pocket watch. The brass pocket watch engraved with a Lunari crest and it's the kind that opens and closes with a, a little spring and has a clip and a chain for securing it to the inside of a vest or jacket. And she pops this open and lays it on a table, and then she'll go to the bookshelf and select a book and flip through it until she finds the page she's looking for. And then she takes out her own spellbook, consults some notes, and scribbles down some kind of equation in the margin of the blank page. And then she'll seat herself, and she pulls out a pin from her components pouch, and very deliberately pricks her finger and then squeezes three drops of blood onto the face of the pocket watch and murmurs a word and then the blood disappears and the face of the pocket watch illuminates with a candle bright glow and she is satisfied and she closes up the pocket watch puts everything back in its place packages up the pocket watch along with a book wrapped in a little parcel and then moves to take her things to join up with Jalen and Leslie and head out Okay. You all can rally outside the gates of Lord Mentor's house. Lady Miev is not interested in casting teleport on his property. He has made it very clear that that is unwelcome. So you can all kind of come together there. Jalen has a lingering thought of, should we go grab Jessica? But she decides against it. <laughs> Jessica is going to be so drunk by now. <laughs> so drunk. Holy and we're shit. not going to pull her with us into the thorns without her wanting to bring Iris. And he's just going to die. So, <laughs> not a fortuitous start to it. No, a, I mean it would be their dream honeymoon, but he would die, and that would be bad. no. It'd be her dream honeymoon. It'd be her dream honeymoon. <laughs> <laughs> it would be his dream honeymoon because she told him it was. That's right. That's right. All right, Lady Miev pulls out her teleport scroll and deposits you at House Lunari at about eight thirty. Work has stopped. People have gone inside, but most people are still awake. The dinner hour has passed. And is there anything you want to do tonight, or should we jump to tomorrow morning? I think Silva has a conversation she wants to have tonight. Also, I want to point out we have three books about the expedition, and so some a, a study session is in yeah, order. Yeah, there's going to be a study session. I think Jalen wants to talk to Lynn, too. Um, I know. Okay. <laughs> One of these days, are we going to get to the thorns? <laughs> I want to get to the thorns! When we landed at, at House Lunari, Silva would have told Jalen... Let's meet in the common area later to study these all together. I think it would be a good idea if this information wasn't just living in my brain. Jalen would agree to that. First, I, I need to attend to some personal things so I can fully focus on the task at hand. And I think you noticed then, at some point when she was at the townhouse, she obviously had a cry. I think it's difficult mm -hmm. to tell when Silpha's been crying because her eyes don't get red, but... There's a little puffiness, and the edges of her eye makeup are smudged. I think Jalen signs her in phrenemic. Can I help? Silpha just shakes her head and, and waves a, a signal, like, tell you later. Where are you going, Silpha? Silpha is going to try to find Byron, since he has a guest room in the house. Yeah, so you find a guest room in the house. There are two house Pornino guards on it. When you walk up, they just nod and... One of them turns the handle and opens the door for you and lets you in. I'm imagining it as one of those hotel suites that has both a bedroom and a little study area. Yeah, the kids are both curled up in the bed and they have 
definitely fallen asleep at this point, and Byron is sitting on a couch with a book and looks up as you walk in and smiles. Silva has brought a tray with some of Helga's tarts from Jalen and some tea and the little parcel that she wrapped up at the townhouse. He nods and stands up and says, I think there's a little space over here in this study area. We can be a little bit further from the kids. She'll sit down with him. I came to check in and to share news and tarts if you want them. He nods and and he'll take a tart and nibble on it and say, so what's the news? My friends and I met again with the mentors and we have put your plan in motion. He'll nod and say, okay. I'm excited to get this chapter behind us as soon as possible. And so I think then she will say, just because there are guards outside the door, there's more listening ears than Silpha is used to in her house. So she will suggest, I can share the details with you, but I would like to continue this conversation in a manner which is less easily overheard. If I whisper something into my hand, you'll hear my voice in your ear, and you can reply in kind. So she will use the message cantrip to share with him the details of the plan that we came up with at this evening's meeting with the mentors. Okay. You two can have a whispered conversation back and forth. Byron finds it a little frightening at first, but then seems to relax into it. The magic suddenly becomes much more interesting after a few seconds with him realizing that nothing bad happens. But yeah, you can recap the plans. And then she says, well, another outcome of this evening's meeting is that my courtship with Leslie Evans is concluded as she's signed a marriage contract with Harriet Mentor. So my heart now feels free to give your proposal proper consideration. And if it's not too much, I was hoping that we could have a conversation regarding the potential of what a future together might look like. And she's not meeting his eyes and looking down at her hands. Byron will grab your hands and give them a gentle squeeze and say, Would you like me to ask again? You asked me earlier why I deferred your proposal, and I feel I owe you an explanation. One of the qualities I appreciate about you is something I think we hold in common. You're you're thoughtful and you like to weigh your choices carefully without feeling the pressure of making a rushed decision or making a decision that isn't fully yours. I'm aware of the reasons your mother would like for us to marry, but I would like to marry for reasons beyond that. And I hope that if it is truly your desire, you would as well. I can really see the benefits of a union together. As much as I possess magical ability, you hold skills that my family prizes. I like your mind. I like that you have a passion for aspects of business that I value, but have far less natural enthusiasm for doing. In this respect, I think we, we complement each other perfectly, and I'm, I'm certain that if we were partnered in business together, I would thoroughly enjoy it. But I want more than a business arrangement, something different than a cold contract between houses. I, I hate being a game piece, and I fully believe you would never view me or use me in that way. And for that reason alone, I would fully surrender my heart to you and your children. Oh, my God, Byron, kiss her. <laughs> it says the peanut gallery. Like, right now! Like, right now! 
but I, I also have worries. I, I think that you're very easy to love, and I, I fear maybe I'm not. There are things you don't know about me, and I'm convinced that if you knew, you would you would cease to want me, or at least you wouldn't want to marry me and place me in the role of a mother to your children. But yes, I am unwilling yes, to hide them yes, from you, even if I risk everything by telling you. I don't I don't want a relationship founded in deceit. I don't want to wait to reveal them until we are married and take away your choice to decide. Silpha, what I love about you is your bravery and your ingenuity, and you are consistently there when I need you and there when my children need you. You've proven time and again that you are responsible and reliable and incredibly intelligent. I can't imagine that there's anything you could tell me that would change my mind, and I'm certain there's nothing you can tell me that would change my family's mind, but I'm here to listen. She's exceptionally nervous. Well, okay, so my family has a, a colorful history. There are lots of stories of ancestors' adventures during our era of trade, where they had liaisons with very supernatural creatures. Byron will nod and say, there are some similar tales on my side of the family. Apparently, this persists to this day. And, uh, well, some of the consequence of this within my family is that occasionally individuals born with natural magical talent occur. Sorcerers. Are you, are you trying to tell me that you're a sorcerer, or...? No, I mean, I suppose it would only be a concern of yours if you were to desire more children. Oh, I see. I'm... I'm not afraid of a child with magic as long as you're here. <laughs> well, I'm not in any hurry in that regard. Additionally, I have learned that those proclivities for liaisons with supernatural creatures have persisted in some of the current generation of Lunaris. I'm trying to tell you I'm part fairy. Byron lets out a little bit of a deep breath and says, okay, okay, I can accept that. Is that the big news? She looks relieved, really relieved. Yes, it's a little more than that. My nature is such that I could choose to be a fairy if I wanted, and I have no desire for that whatsoever. He started to look a little nervous, and then when you say you have no desire for that whatsoever, he calms down again. But I have also been promised to a fairy since the day I was born. <laughs> now he looks confused. <laughs> if I were to choose to become a fairy, my fairy love would be predetermined. Byron says, but you you just said you weren't going to do that, right? Yes. I would never willingly choose to be a fairy. Well, great. Then, well, then it could all be set. There are other rumors of fairy liaisons in the kingdom. This shouldn't be any sort of problem. And then, you know, if you choose human, then, well, then that other thing isn't a problem, right? Right. I I just didn't want any surprises. Silpha, 
My mother thinks I don't know this, but in my family history, there is some supernatural creatures as well. And I, I don't understand them. I guess they're the enemies of the fairies. They're whatever the opposite of a fairy is, I guess. Vampires. Oh. Oh, jeez. I mean, I didn't... Not exactly the opposite of a fairy, but definitely in opposition. Okay. Well, I don't think there's been vampires around for a few generations. There's... (laughs) (laughs) Sofa doesn't laugh. (laughs) There's evidence of them in the in the walls of the manor, but I think that they are out of the picture. There's something else that I should tell you. Annabelle has a proclivity to... Well, sometimes things get lit on fire around her, and there's no explanation. Mercury, <laughs> <laughs> <Forkery>, baby! Yeah. <laughs> Silpha takes this more calmly than most people might. (laughs) She raises an eyebrow and says, we shall have to keep an eye on that. Yeah, I could, I could really use some help with it if you're, um, if you're still interested. Well, I don't know whether you imagine the same type of future as I do, but you should know that my greatest desire is to see and explore the world beyond the thorns. Would you grant me that, or even better, would you be willing to join me in doing that? Byron removes his hand from his whisper spell formation near his face and wraps one around your elbow and reaches the other hand up towards Silpha's face. And he says, Silpha, I would follow you anywhere. (laughs) And then he kisses her, right? Come on. He leans in to kiss you. Are you accepting said kiss? Silva absolutely accepts said kiss and becomes a pile of mush. When she recovers from blushing madly, she says, Then, then I accept. And she pulls out the chain with the ring and takes it off and puts it in his hand for him to put on her finger. He very nervously, his hands are a little shaky, slides it onto your finger. And he says, Silva Lunari, you are going to make me the happiest man in this kingdom. Hmm. I have something for you. A few somethings. She will then pull out the parcel for him. Okay. In it is a watch and a book, right? Yes. She prods him towards the watch and says, I made it for you. Open it. So he clicks the watch open, and I believe it glows, right? It just gives off this faint light. Yeah, it glows, and she'll say, It's a continual flame. Usually, an object illuminated in such a manner burns forever, but I altered it. I have connected it to me. You strike me as someone who worries, which I confess I find both endearing and concerning. (laughs) It's endearing because... It shows me you're someone who cares. But it's worrisome because I think that if I continue on like I do, I might worry you to death. Byron smiles and says, I told you that your bravery is something I truly admire. It's something I may not have myself. And that is one of the things I find so fascinating about you. Well, as long as I live, I will 
keep a flame burning for you. And as long as that is illuminated, you know that I am alive. And he looks at it a bit more seriously now, and you can see different emotions roll across his face. And he says, this is an incredibly thoughtful gift, Silpha. I will keep it next to me. And when you're gone, I will watch it constantly until you return. I will always return to the flame. And he looks at the book. What's the book? The book is a magic primer with some instruction for reading spells, interpreting them, and the basics of creating magical formulae. And she says, I, I do have a desire for you to learn a bit of magic. You've demonstrated to me that you have a quality of moral character such that I would feel comfortable instructing you, and you have read the previous book that I gave you. So I hope that learning a bit of magic will demystify some of what I do and make it less intimidating to you. If you read this, you will be ready for me to teach you to perform a spell when I return. He gives you a soft smile and says, well, I would offer to teach you bookkeeping and stonemasonry, but you seem to have those down. And I guess I would offer to teach you codes, but you, well, you're pretty far along in that. I guess. I guess in exchange for this gift, I've got only one thing to give. She will kiss him again. Let me give you the little bits of information that are in the books. So, Silpha and Jalid, you can pour over these books. They're actually not very long because they're accountings of assembling the teams and the day they leave. Mm. <laughs> and there's just nothing else. The first group was actually a house mason led foray to attempt to reclaim the castle. It sounds like they took a lot of supplies in big, heavy boxes. It sounds like they left at night, which sounds very strange if you didn't know what you know. And judging from the description of what they took with them, you're imagining they didn't make it further than the Mason Crypt. Oh, so this is likely the group that left with Guire. The book does not lay out that they are vampires or mystical in any way. They're just knights from House Mason that took it upon themselves to charge headlong into the thorns, and they never came back. Okay, well, we know what happened to that group. Yeah, we okay. do know what happened to that <laughs> <Yeah>. group. <laughs> okay. The second group is a group of valiant knights, one knight from each house. They each brought a page, and they each brought two or three thorns-cutting serfs, and they specifically had no magic. You can read through. In the first days after the thorns came up, the backlash against magic was huge. Mm. And so that it confirms that they have no magical talent. They are strictly swordsmen. And they march into the thorns on horseback, and they do not return. There's no other information on them <laughs> and at Sylph all. And like, that's your problem right there. <laughs> no magic and horses. <laughs> mm -hmm. And about 20 years goes by before someone attempts again. And this last attempt, they pull in... A group of three or four houses, looks like the Druries, the Frikers, and the Mentors, put forward several people. And they went into the Thorns together in about a group of 20. And their hope, the thing that they thought was going to give them an edge over the previous nights, is that they had uh, deeply experienced Thorns Beast hunters. And they basically had true badasses. People who were 
expert at fighting creatures much larger than them and much more dangerous. And they also, like the groups before them, were never heard from again. There's some indication that they didn't really have a lot of magic at their disposal, but you'll note that after 20 years, the anti-magic sentiment faded. It doesn't confirm, they didn't go through a no-magic physical or anything, so they might have had some abilities, but you're guessing this was probably a group of rangers who did not make it. Okay, so it's been 60 years since anybody... It's been 60 years since anybody's tried it. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. What you can tell from some of the closing notes, they were never seen again, is that it was a big blow every time to the house's powers that sent people, because they sent their best people. The fact that no one came back at all ended up being pretty damaging to their livelihood and perceived strength. Not to mention morale for the whole kingdom. (laughs) And tremendously bad for everyone's morale, even the people who didn't send anybody. Jalen sits back and takes out a knife and starts sharpening it and says, well, I guess it's good to know this, but... Well, time is of the essence in such a way that I don't... I don't know how much difference it would make, but I'm going to leave some notes that outline everything we know. Yep, probably a good plan. And all of our intentions. So when you come back, Lynn is peacefully asleep. In the barn. In the barn, curled up in a blanket, and he seems to hear you coming and stirs a little bit and makes space for you. She's going to take a second to quietly take off all her armor and weapons and boots and everything, and then she's going to slip under the blanket with him. Glynn says, hey. Hey. It's really good to see you. Should you get some sleep? Yeah. Yeah, I've got a couple hours now. She says, lots been happening, but we can talk about that later if you like. Yeah, here, I can wake up a little more. And he shifts and rolls on his side. What's on your mind? Well, my sister got married, and the politics are calming down inside the kingdom, but they're not calming down outside the kingdom, and we're we're likely leaving first thing in the morning, a full day early. Okay, I can be ready. Your sister got married? Well, one of them got married. One of them is in a contract to be married to Harriet Mentor. Oh, that was fast. Yeah. Speaking of fast. (laughs) Speaking of fast. She's been curled on her side with her head on his chest, and she props her head up on her hand so she can see his face a little better and says, This, I don't want to be too forward or anything, Lynn, but this is... This is probably the last time you and I are going to get a chance to be alone for a good while. Hmm. Did you get enough sleep? Yeah. Yeah. I did. (laughs) (laughs) Lynn's face starts to flush a little bit, and he says, um, so yeah, I mean, there's lots of interesting things to talk about, given that half your family got married last night, and I guess we gotta have a battle plan in the morning and other (laughs) business. She says, yeah, I I didn't necessarily mean we have to talk about things now, Lynn. Yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm trying to do whatever is a good idea right now. (laughs) But, you know, you only live once, right? True. I don't want you doing anything you're uncomfortable doing, Lynn. Oh, no, I'm I'm comfortable. (laughs) I think Lynn shifts his weight again and says, uh, you know... There is something I wanted to do. Yeah. And he leans in for a big kiss. Mm. A 
a deep one, which you have not really had a lot of opportunity to do just yet. And that is the end of our episode with not one, but two fade to black scenes. I got to say, when I planned this campaign, I did not have any romance elements in it initially. And I added them as like little political moves and it turned into a thing as the players really invested in the NPCs. I have no regrets, only further evidence that nothing ever goes as planned. But if you give the players the freedom to kind of like write their own story, it'll probably be better. Almost always better. Next time, maybe we go to the palace. Find out on Carrots and Suffering, a D&D Odyssey. So there's a there was just a delay on the line, so now I'm on the hook here. I don't know what happened. <laughs> we we got she Silpa, absolutely Silpa accepted, accepted the kiss. kiss. We heard that. Silpha accepts the kiss and transforms into a puddle of mush. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, now he's got a puddle of mush on his couch with him. <laughs> he's like wizards. <laughs> wizards are so weird. <laughs> Sandra, Sandra just outdid herself. <laughs> what? Look in the chat. I only have one thing to give you. Oh it's no! My dick in a box. <laughs> oh man, that laughter is gonna come through really loud on the line. That's that's amazing. <laughs> but dick in a box, yeah. You should have said that. I'm saying it now. <laughs> That's what came into my head. I was just like, oh, they're having this sweet moment. I only have one thing to give you. It's my dick in a box. I was just like, oh, God. Okay. Um, right. Mature professionals. We're mature, <laughs> mature professionals. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That is amazing. <laughs>